Hello and welcome. It's Progressive News Network on Block Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sunday, May 24, on this Memorial Day weekend, uh, when uh, I think that this is uh, the official beginning of the second wave of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, or COVID-19 or coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Social media today was full of pictures of people enjoying themselves at public swimming pools and watering holes and and shopping districts and just generally germing it up. That's that's what's happening. But, you know, most of the people out there, it seems like, uh, think that it's a big, uh, it's a, a, a big hoax, that there's a hoax about, um, seems to be Trump supporters and anti-Trumpers and just everybody wants to believe that it, that it isn't a big deal. And um, I think we're going to find out. We're going to find out after uh, Memorial Day weekend, uh, it's, uh, and maybe that'll be settled after that. Uh, tonight, we have we have a lot of problems. We have so many problems tonight. We have Joe Biden's black problem that he's having. We could just call that Joe Biden's general problem with doing interviews, uh, his foot and mouth disease. Uh, but we'll be getting into that. We've got Nancy Pelosi's fat problem. We've got general justice problems in the United States. And we have Kardec Krishnayer on to talk about uh, uh, in, in a media critic kind of way to talk about uh, the journalism's truth problem. So we're going to talk a little bit about that Ronan Farrow article that came out in uh, the New York Times last week, and it was about a week ago, and uh, some of the fallout from that. So look forward to that. 7.30, we've got Janine Moloff at 8.30. Oh, and sandwiched in between, Carter Krishnayer and Janine Moloff is part two of the Jerry Brown interview on the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, that is part of our initiative to bring you guys a little bit more culture uh, uh, because we think it makes the politics go down. Actually, we just get tired of politics at a certain point. You know, we just want to, we got to do something else. Um, But tonight, tonight, we got, uh, we got lots of politics before any of that. So without further ado, let's just get right down to it. Um, Let's talk about Joe Biden's interview with Charlemagne the Great. Holy Moses, what was going on there? So I think a lot of y'all have heard the uh, the the problematic piece, but I'm going to go ahead and play it just so that we're all on the same page. Here goes. Here it is. How much that's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. You can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on. By the way, this is right at the end of the interview, and the comms person is trying to uh, shuffle Charlemagne away right as things are getting a little testy. And uh, you know, you will you will hear this from time to time. It is one of the um, uh, calls in nature of of comms people. You'll you'll hear it from the background in these uh, um, media pieces. So here's Charlemagne, and he's trying to save the last question. You know, he's trying to 
end this on a positive note after he was like rudely interrupted by the comms person who was trying to uh, send a lifeline out to her her candidate here. And now watch what happens or listen. At six o'clock. Okay. Oh, oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I it's, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it don't have nothing to do with Trump. Now, a lot of people stop the clip right there. As a matter of fact, uh, CNN or MSNBC has played this a number of times today, and they have ended the clip right there. But there's more. Here it is. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. We Thanks get so much. That's really our time. Damn it. I don't have it. So right after <laughs> Joe Biden says, uh, uh, if you still don't know who to vote for, then, then, then you ain't black. So he adopts this, this uh, African-American vernacular manner of speech, which is just annoying as hell. Can you imagine a, a, a candidate doing that with any other ethnic group? Can you imagine like, Actually, I can imagine Joe Biden adopting like a, a um, Hispanic vernacular or an Asian vernacular. I can totally imagine him doing that, but it would be so much more obvious, you know, that it, that that is outside of the bounds of of good taste, right? Um, but somehow, uh, all politicians, it seems like. Uh, but not Bernie Sanders, but all politicians think that it's okay to to adopt this this uh, really cringy uh, vernacular when when uh, talking to black media people, and they also do this in the South, you know, and that 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 black vernacular and Southern vernacular kind of get mixed up together. Hillary Clinton was the worst at this. I mean, you know, hot sauce aside. It's just, it's awful. And just, y'all, don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, Joe Biden goes on to say, uh, I've done all of these things. I, I voted for the Voting Rights Act. So, 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 uh, so he's saying, <laughs> y'all can vote. You know, like, like that, there's something you can vote. Um, but he's saying, but you can only vote for Democrats and you can only vote for me. Um, and then he says, the NAACP has endorsed me every year. And it turns out that that's a big fat lie, right? That's uh, the NAACP does not endorse. And uh, all of this, this whole Charlemagne interview with Joe Biden, the whole thing was problematic, right? It wasn't just this in peace. It was, it, it was uh, soup to nuts. Um, I don't know who super nuts is in this equation. You can figure that out yourself. But Joe Biden lied his ass off the whole way through it. He, he, he for a long, a, a lot of the interview, and, you know, Charlemagne did a really freaking good job of not getting in his face because there were moments in this interview where I would have gotten his face. Um, where he was just he was just lying his ass off and he was pushing back in a way that just does not you just don't do. I don't care if you're running for the president. I don't care what you're doing. You're a guest on somebody's show and you need to show some some kind of deference to the person who is interviewing you. You know because they invited you on. Oh my God. Um, 
and it wasn't like Charlemagne was like attacking him either. It was like, you know, uh, let's, let's talk about uh, some of the ways that the black community could use some of your help and uh, what you're going to do. And that was just too much. That was too much for Joe Biden. But like in so many different uh, occasions, instead of, instead of thinking twice, and reaching back for stuff that is true that he could say about his his uh, record or who he is or what he thinks, Joe Biden reached inside and just pulled out one lie after another. Uh, he talked about a lot of what they talked about was a crime bill, and one of the things that he said was uh, he wasn't for three strikes. You know, three strikes and you're out. Where if you got three uh, criminal offenses, you go off to prison forever. Uh, he was most definitely for that. It was one of the uh, selling pieces of the legislation. He claimed that he wasn't for incentivizing states to create more prisons. But that was, again, one of the banner things that he went out and he sold the crime bill based on. That this isn't going to cost states anything. That the, the, the building prisons is going to be incentivized. And, and uh, you know, this is just going to be um, for a lot of rural areas. This was heralded as, as business development, you know, economic development for uh, places way out in the sticks that don't have any other forms of industry after NAFTA, which, by the way, uh, Joe Biden also had a big hand in. Uh, over and over again, he defaults and defaulted in this interview to just lying, just freaking lying. And it's so frustrating because he doesn't have to do that, you know. Um, but Sticking to, let's stick to just the thing about you, quote unquote, you ain't black if you don't know who you're going to vote for. You ain't black. I mean, to tell to tell the African-American community uh, whether or not, you know, you're black is, is with regard to who you vote for. Uh, Charlemagne had a really interesting thing to say about this on Aaron Burnett's show, and, uh, and that way, here it like is. That question, what makes somebody black, that's a discussion for black people to have, you know, and a white man is certainly not qualified to have that discussion, but people do connect blackness to support and protection of black culture, so I guess when we see a black person voting for Trump, and you, you know Trump is a threat to marginalized people in this country, it does make you question how much that person cares about his people. So I understand the statement if it's a shot coming from a whole white man like Joe Biden. It was a real bulwark moment, if you've ever seen that movie. In that way. Like. So, a lot there. I mean, Charlamagne just, he just throws it down. Like, that That was a really, really good um, run talking about what, what was wrong with this, uh, with this statement that Joe Biden made. And, um, and, he, and he then references the uh, – sorry about that, y'all. Then he references the movie Bulwark, um, which came out in 1998 – I remember seeing this movie in the theater the night that it dropped, and uh, other than seeing like a, a Batman, a DC Comics kind of stuff in the movie theater, this is the only time that I've been in a movie theater where people were applauding during during the movie. You know, I, I remember a couple times seeing uh, Marvel Universe or Batman movies, and people would applaud for the logo. 
<laughs> because that's what fanboys do. Um, that's not what was going on in the theater for Bullworth. Bullworth is, by all accounts, a mediocre comedy. It is not that good of a comedy. But it's social commentary on uh, political campaigning and, and the political uh, consultancy class is spot on. And folks in Nashville, uh, where I saw the movie in 1998, 22 years ago, really caught on to that. Now, Charlemagne refers to, you know, the old white guy, you know, having this Bullworth moment. And this is the clip. This is the important clip. Uh, this is Bullworth, who is um, speaking in a African-American church uh, on a, I believe he's doing a Senate campaign. So here it is. your kids are out of work and the other half are in jail. Do you see any Democrat doing anything about it? Certainly not me. What do you got to do? Vote Republican? Come on. Come on. You're not going to vote So, okay, that's Warren Beatty, speaking of a... Um, other movies. That's Warren Beatty. And... He actually, he actually in this piece, so, so it starts out with a woman in the audience saying, uh, uh, you know, what are you, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? And, and he's like, come on, come on. What are you going to do? Vote for Republicans? This is almost word for word what Joe Biden says every single time he gets confronted with something. He says, come on, man, and, and, and look at or look at fat or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, he's, he, it, it, and he doesn't finish sentences and he seems to get lost and so on and so forth, all of that. But it is absolutely Bullworth moments. He, uh, Charlemagne nails it in that. Um, uh, Bullworth, the movie, is, is uh, marked by some really, really bad rapping. It's, it, it's, um, atrocious cultural appropriation for a reason it is in services narrative and i understand what they are doing it is a cringe fest to watch to go back and watch but like i said really decent uh social commentary and political commentary so worth it to revisit full worth as we're uh doing our quarantine our lockdown, our, you know, social distancing, uh, consumption of media. And hopefully we're not down at the public swimming pool for crying out loud on Memorial Day. I mean, at least I understand. I understand the, the need and the want to get out and do something. Now, Florida, it's going to be raining all over Florida tomorrow. So too bad, guys. Um, uh, you know, small favors. Maybe we'll uh, not have too much of a spike, uh, given that, given that we only had two days in a row for uh, Memorial Day revelers to uh, become vectors. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how this goes. I'm a little bit worried about that. All right. Um, you know. There's a lot more that I could say about that. Go watch Bullworth. Uh, it's it's definitely worth your time. And uh, 
and watch the whole Charlemagne interview. Just like I said, the whole thing is is just amazing. It's it's gobsmacking. I felt bad for Charlemagne. Now I I have seen a lot of criticism of Charlemagne. Um, a lot of people are praising him. Glenn Greenwald praised him. I've also seen people uh, in in my own threads on Twitter saying he could have done more. He could have been uh, better prepared. I think it's really difficult to push back on a presidential candidate. I think in, especially, you know, you get this early morning thing and, uh, you know, I don't care how many co- cups of coffee you've drank, if it's before six o'clock in the morning, you, you, you're, you're not your sharpest. And maybe it's not even the, the time to push back terribly on stuff. But he, I, I agree. He could have been a little bit better, uh, better prepared to, to say uh, when, when Joe Biden is uh, confabulating things, just a little bit better prepared to say, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think that's true. I would have liked to have seen that. Um, but there's that. That is our first problem of the night. And we are moving on to our second problem of the night, which is... Yeah, baby, we're fat. We're fat. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, ice cream enthusiast, ice cream enthusiast and, and kitchen appliance enthusiast. Nancy Pelosi this week, um, in just the the worst, worst moment, the worst take, the worst moment in media this week, called Donald Trump fat. And then said he had doo-doo on, on his shoes or something. And um, uh, some people might think that's funny, right? Um, yeah, he's a big fatty fat fat, you know, whatever. Uh, the way Joe Biden, you know, went after somebody asking him a um, serious question, you know, hey, look fat, you Do I have to tell you guys that fat shaming is wrong? Do I do, do I really need to do that? Um, you know, Bill Maher got into that big uh, brouhaha over fat shaming not too long ago. He said, what we have is fit shaming. What we need is more fat shaming because then people lose weight. And that was followed by all of these articles that, you know, just lots and lots of research that shows uh, the, the, that there is a correlation with significant weight gain with um, and uh, uh, implicit bias for body weight. So, like in, in other words, the more people experience implicit bias with with body weight, the more likely they are to gain significant amounts of weight. Uh, fat shaming does not make people lead more healthier lives. It makes them. It's bullying and it's disgusting. And it, it makes people want to crawl up into a uh, into a Pepperidge Farm uh, container of cookies and never come out again. Okay, so so we don't fat shame when it is uh, when we are interested in in people fit. We don't we don't do that when we're interested in people being leading more healthier lives because it doesn't work. Okay, but 
in a political, in the, in the context of a political discourse, you don't use fat shaming as a proxy for uh, uh, issues of character. And that's what Nancy Pelosi did. She said that Donald Trump was fat, that he was morbidly obese, Instead of saying that he is a man of bad character. And so you see what's going on there is that Nancy Pelosi obviously thinks that anybody who has a BMI over whatever it is that she has with her ice cream freaking habit, uh, that they are of low character, that they have bad personal character, probably bad personal hygiene, probably bad personal this, bad personal that. That's the way implicit bias works. You know, it just gets spread out over everything. And what that did, what Nancy Pelosi did so much was that she didn't attack Donald Trump, certainly didn't attack him in a, in, in a effective way. But what she really did was she attacked everybody who who uh, you know has has body weight issues or or thinks they have body weight issues or has dis, uh, body dysmorphia uh, with regard to 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 weight? Okay. Um, Harvard did some research 2007 to 2016 that found um, that all forms of implicit bias, bigotry. Uh, bigotry for sexuality, bigotry about race, bigotry about age and disability and skin tone in from 2007 to 2016, that those kinds of bigotry have dropped. They, 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 uh, they did a a review of 4.2 million surveys on implicit bias. And they found during those years that all those forms of, of bigotry dropped, but that, body weight bigotry increased by 15%. The discrimination is real. And what it, what that discrimination actually does is, is it's, uh, like I said, it's bullying. It, um, it doesn't hit your target. Let me tell you, Donald Trump would like nothing better than to be slinging Slinging the the poo on the lev- levels of your fat and you got poo on your shoe and all of that. That is like that is like going straight into his house and playing by his rules. And I don't know why anybody would want to do that. Just as a matter of strategy. But let me tell you something. As as a matter of of political discourse, what that does is is it, it 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 empowers trump okay it empowers the bully you're not neutralizing his rhetoric you're reinforcing it you know when you see to the high ground and this is what we've talked about so often about you know joe biden problems with joe biden that that uh, that we see the high ground on on lying all the time. We seed the high ground on corruption. We seed the high ground on issues of race. We seed the high ground on issues of sexual harassment and and, uh, rape allegations. We've seeded, C-E-D-E, we've seeded all of these areas where we should be winning. Democrats should be winning in all of those areas, but we picked the wrong person. We got to deal with that. We don't need Nancy Pelosi going out there and, and, and bringing 
the discourse down to your fat and you've got doo-doo on your shoe. For God's sakes, somebody else needs to take the microphone and let Nancy go back to her million-dollar kitchen with her $30,000 refrigerators and just crawl into a giant thing of ice cream and never come out. I, I'm really just, I'm, I, I'm sick and tired of it. And I've seen other politicians follow along, people who I like, and y'all got to knock that shit off. You really do. Um, it's, it's really bad form, and it does absolutely nothing to burnish your uh, bona fides as a progressive or as a liberal. All it does is show that you're unable to think of anything better to say, all right? And you're, you're resorting to schoolyard bullying um, types of ways that... Oh, it's just awful, and it just makes me so damn mad. And I, and I got to tell you why, too. You know, I have been the same amount of overweight since I was born. I came out of the womb, and my mother looked at me, and she said, that is going to be – she could be a wrestling champion. I, she told me that all the time, you know, like like I thought that was going to be inspiring or something. You don't get me wrong. I love wrestling, I guess, you know, like I don't hate it. Like I think it's funny or whatever. But I – it's not something that for me myself that, you know, that I would have chosen to do. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I think that I would like to do is uh, start a beauty channel. But you know what? You can't do that if you have body issues or if you have weight issues. You get these kinds of the other kinds of issues. You just can't do it. So, you know, fat shaming, it, it it's basically its own category of, of, of grad school um, research and critique at this point. And like the Harvard study said, we've, we've got bigotry on, on the run. Bigotry for sexuality, race, age, disability, skin tone, all of those categories of bigotry have dropped immensely since 2007 to 2000 to 2016, but we've seen an increase in in um, body discrimination. Uh, I don't want to go into all of the ways uh, that this is super dangerous. Uh, uh, people who are overweight are less likely to have their pain treated at a doctor. They're less likely to be diagnosed with serious illness because they go into a doctor's office and they're just dismissed as, oh, well, you've got a few extra pounds on you. So, you know, whatever it is that is probably wrong with your health, it just doesn't matter because you don't care enough about your body to, uh, to maintain a, a weight that is preferable to whatever healthcare professional is that is in front of you at the time. Okay. Um, compound that with a, uh, if you go into a doctor and you're overweight, let's say you go into a doctor, you're overweight, and you're a woman, okay, you got the double whammy. You go into a doctor, you're overweight, you're a woman, and you're a woman of color. Oh, my God, three strikes against you. You go into a doctor, you're overweight, you are a, a, a woman, you uh, have a, a racial or ethnic designation other than uh, Anglo waspiness, um, and add to that. Maybe you're poor, 
And five, maybe you're on a, you're a, a, a being treated for depression or anxiety. Um, you put all of those together and forget about it. You are shunned from medical care, regardless of your ability to pay, regardless of, the, of whether or not you have insurance, you are not going to be treated as a human being at a doctor's office, okay? <clears throat> Doctors are not enlightened, uh, and it is up to us to you know, call this stuff out as we see it. Nancy Pelosi is a leader. She is a leader of the House of Representatives. She's the Speaker of the House. That means that she is like what third in line should uh, uh, the president and the, or and or the vice president uh, meet an unfortunate, untimely demise. Uh, that's important. She's an important person. People listen to her. She does not need to be the person fat shaming. Okay, that's all. That is all I'm going to do on that because, uh, oh boy, good lord, that just. Uh, grinds my gears. All right. We have card at Chris Meyer coming up in just a few minutes. I got a little bit that I want to do to lead up to his piece. Um, enjoy this while I find what it is I'm doing. Okay, like I said earlier, we do have uh, the second part of the interview with um, Jerry Brown coming up after we speak with Carter Krishnayer on the media criticism piece, checking my messages. Okay. Um, like I said, there's a bunch of good stuff on this Ben Smith column, uh, which is entitled The Rowan. Is Ronan Farrow too good to be true? You know, Ronan Farrow just put out this book, um, uh, you know, talking about his, you know, trying to publish his pieces on Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, it was pretty sweeping. It brought in Matt Lauer and this, that, and the other thing. So Ben Smith wonders, is it too good to be true? And in this piece, he talks about resistance journalism. And I want to, real quick, before we bring on Pardick, I want to mention that Glenn Greenwald had a remarkable uh, follow-on to the uh, Ben Smith piece. Ben Smith published on May 17, Glenn Greenwald published on May 18. And Glenn picks up on this piece, uh, I'm going to bring Pardick in right now. while he's uh, spinning up. There he is. Hey, Kardik. Hi. It is so good to talk to you. Me and Kardik uh, talked earlier this week. I think for a total of, it seems like 16 hours. <laughs> Just catching I, I, up I, I, on... But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just catching up on stuff. There's just so much crazy stuff going on. And Cardick, I just wanted to, you know, we're going to talk about this Ron and Farrow thing, and I wanted to give people a heads up on this uh, beautiful Glenn Greenwald piece. And the reason why I like it so much is Glenn Greenwald is at his absolute best when he is doing withering criticism, and he 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 goes in for some withering criticism in this piece as he's talking about Marcy Wheeler, and this is some of my favorite prose that I've read 
all year long. And I'm just going to give just a teeny tiny sample of it uh, to, to kick off the segment. Uh, Glenn Greenwald says that um, uh, he says that Ben Smith aptly describes uh, uh, the thing that he's criticizing as resistance journalism. And so then Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald pulls in Marcy Wheeler and uh, the thing that she did this year uh, or recently uh, to illustrate that. And, and, and if you don't know, Marcy Wheeler uh, had a source someone who was talking to her about Russiagate, and she w- willingly, no one asked her to, no one pressured her to, willingly turned them into the FBI. She said, um, she said this. Uh, she claimed she did so because her still unnamed source, quote, had played a significant role in the Russian election attack on the U.S., unquote, and because her life was endangered by her brave decision to stop being a blogger and become an armchair cop by pleading with the FBI and the Mueller team to let her work with them. In her blog post announcing what she did, she claimed she was going public with her treachery because her life was in danger, And this way, everyone would know the real reason if, quote, someone releases stolen information about me or knocks me off tomorrow. So that's the level of of craziness we went through with some of this resistance journalism. Karnik, what is your take on this Ronan Farrow article? What 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 are you thinking about it? Well, I actually think what Ronan Farrell has done is anti-resistance journalism, right? I mean, this is the thing that I found, and I, and I, I watched Ben Smith. Uh, I've been stewing about this all week. Uh, and I watched Ben Smith this morning on, on Reliable Sources with Ryan Seltzer. And then Dan Abrams came on after, uh, who, of course, founded Mediate and formerly worked for uh, – formerly with uh, – not only had a show on MSNBC, but I think at one time was the uh, – um, with, with a higher-up, right, program director yeah. or some such thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, um, Ben Smith, in his interview, I think, was kind of all over the place and contradicting himself. And, and I have to say, this is something I don't think he would have written at BuzzFeed. Um, now, you could argue, oh, well, he would have had the resources to write it at BuzzFeed. Well, that, that's not necessarily true. Um, I think there is some heavy-duty um, agenda journalism going on or whatever you want to call it at the higher levels in New York city among the elite uh, at places like NBC, uh, which is, uh, which has been Ronan Farrow's target. And remember once upon a time, Ronan Farrow had a show on MSNBC, right? Um, right. So yeah, I mean, he, he, he was, he was in the building. He has, um, he has the cred to have done what he's done now in the last few years. Um, and also in terms of just trying to, um, create this kind of narrative that, um, that, that the Me Too movement or sexual harassment allegations in, uh, in the media and in Hollywood are somehow um, these kind of salacious gossip type uh, stories. Whereas when they're about elected officials or former elected officials or current uh, elected officials, there is a whole different threshold that the media um, uh, deals with with that. So this is what I think there's just a mind-numbing inconsistency. Um, how can the media be um, trusted to deal with 
the Tara Reid allegations, the allegations against President Trump, which were by about 25 women, um, the allegations against former President Bill Clinton, and any number of other things uh, involving people in public office or who have been running for public office uh, when in their own house they take a different standard, right? They, they actually, in fact, are doing this kind of um, sort of, 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 of anti-muckraking, right, this, this pushback against, uh, against muckrakers. And, and um, it, it's, uh, it, there, there's a certain degree of, uh, of character assassination going on in, in terms of mm-hmm. uh, the way Ronald Farrow is being treated. And, and the things that are being said. And, and uh, real quickly, I want to, uh, I think Ben Smith, and we'll get into this in a minute, was um, he was trying to say that, that Farrell made too, much assum- too many assumptions in his reporting, but then goes on to, goes on to essentially um, admit in the interview with Stelter this morning. Um, now, of course, in his, in his article, his long soliloquy in the New York Times earlier this week, he talked about these assumptions and, and, and alleged sloppiness on Farrell's part. He does admit it is for a reporter, and I've been, I've been through this. You know, I, 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 I've, I had a knockdown, dragout confrontation with the, uh, with the communications director for the United States Soccer Federation because he told me, you're making assumptions. I, I'm sitting there when the person you're making assumptions about says every word that is on the record. And I said, well, if you're not giving me what I need, I have to interpret it, right? That's what a reporter does. That's what a journalist mm-hmm. does. And so essentially, Pharaoh is being taken to task for making interpretations based on, um, based on what he has found out about all of these things. Now, let me contrast that with someone like Bob Woodward. Who um, I believe is quite sloppy in his writing. I believe uh, may have even made things up in some of his, his books. I mean, I, I really felt this way, um, even though I'm not a Bill Clinton fan. I really felt like the way he went after Clinton in, in a couple of books um, during that during the '90s, and then um, praised George W. Bush. Uh, he eventually turned on Bush, but had all this access to the Bush administration. That there was this, there was this drawing the line between point A and point B without the information that Woodward got away with because he was Bob Woodward. But heaven forbid if Ronan Farrow does something, which is not quite that. Because we have, again, a history of people who have stonewalled. We have a history of people that have been, have been dishonest about this issue. We have a history of, of kind of corporate, um, a, a, a corporate behemoth that is uh, – James and hushed up women and protected predatory men. So if you think that you're going to get every source in that kind of scenario to go on the record with a reporter like Ronan Farrow, who they know, they, they, they know where he's going with the story, you're kidding yourself. But they would never apply that standard to something else is my point. Mm-hmm. And there was a, <clears throat> there was a really good uh, critical piece on this by Ashley Feinberg in Slate called Is Ben Smith's Column About Ronan Farrow Too Good to Be True. And she does a really good she does a really good job of of motivating, you know, the exactly what you're what you're talking about. And she she points out 
Reporters everywhere, but at the New York Times especially, could hardly contain their glee. Nearly everyone, it seemed, had been waiting for someone to take the first swing at one of the most widely praised journalists working today, and it made sense that one of the first attempts should come from Ben Smith. Yeah, so, so you know, it's it's like, um, I, I, like, the whole coterie, the the culture of journalists were going, hey, you and you fight, you know, and and just you know, like ah, I can't wait and to see these what? guys fight. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise this issue, Brooke. I hope the New York Times has all its T's crossed and all its eyes dotted, and we don't have another Gleason Blair type scandal uh, lurking. Because I will point out in the '90s, in my kind of orientation to this stuff, when I was coming of age, when I was hanging around Washington D.C., when I was uh, getting involved with politics, um, we had the New Republic. And the New Republic had major, they, the New Republic took shots at everybody. And it was essentially like the official Clintonian uh, journal at times. At other times, it was uh, because when Andrew Sullivan took it in a different direction, they started taking, uh, you know, kind of crazy shots at Clinton all the time. I think Mike Kelly did that too. But they were, they were hypercritical. Uh, of the political scene in Washington, D.C. Then they had mm-hmm. two huge scandals. They had uh, Ruth Shallot, who was like a 22-year-old uh, reporter who had made, who, who had falsified things and had plagiarized in her story. Um, and that, and the, the fact that Ruth Shallot isn't even remembered today is because of what happened a year later with Stephen Glass, a year or two later. I, um, it was between 1996 and 1998 all of this happened. Stephen Glass, uh, if you're not aware of it, those of you out there, essentially made up about 40 stories that made the print edition of the New Republic, the weekly magazine, and got past fact checkers. And the, and the uh, story he got caught on was a story about uh, hackers, ironically enough, since everybody loves to talk about Russia now, um, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, computer hackers and a computer hacker convention, which... Um, the online uh, version of Forbes magazine caught him on, not because they thought the story was suspicious when they read it. They decided they would do like a follow-up story because it was so intriguing and they had missed it. And then when they began to try and follow up, they realized none of these people existed. So my concern is when I saw the same piece you did, that there were high fives and everybody was excited in the New York Times newsroom because uh, they're taking down Ronan Farrow, who's probably this guy they've had a, you know, they, they, they've had uh, their, their, uh, their bazooka pointed at uh, for, for, for uh, a long time now. And I'm sure there was similar uh, reaction at Rockefeller Center and High Fives and at NBC headquarters. They better hope they have all their T's uh, crossed and I's dotted because they are potentially going to get tripped up. Uh, they're making a living out of discrediting actual journalists who are not only – exposing hypocrisy in the media, but more importantly, advocating for responsible corporate behavior uh, from predatory men towards younger women. And, and let's just not, let's not forget, this is about sexual harassment. This is about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the Stephen Glass thing was just, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because you know, he was one of these at 25, he was 
one of these rising stars and, you know, his name was everywhere. He was, he, he had cover stories on, uh, in, in Harper's and in George and in Rolling Stone. Is that Rolling Stone? Yeah. Rolling Stone. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, yeah. he, he was huge and it turned out to be like 40, uh, pieces that were, uh, that, that were, he just made people up. He just made up his quotes. Uh, there, there's someone uh, that I know who may or may not be cooking dinner right now. Who, when he was in J school, uh, uh, was shocked, absolutely shocked to find out that his classmates, people who were getting to the head of the class, people who were really, really uh, getting attention and, um, you know, being being treated. As as special flowers, that they were just simply making up their quotes. They weren't finding sources. They were just making up the stories as they went along, and uh, you know the professors at at this particular school were none the wiser. No one cared. It was just you know who can who can file their story the quickest with the you know most. Uh, as, tantalizing quotes as possible. Yeah, the, the glass thing was, was particularly striking because he had gotten away with it for so long and he had been, um, he, he had been hypercritical of other writers who didn't have their facts correct in the building. Mm. There was one glass story I remember in particular because I so wanted it to be true and believed it was true and started quoting it all over the place. Um, which was he had gone to CPAC, we all know what CPAC is, and he had uh, made up uh, this story about, you know, uh, the, 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 the kind of culture at CPAC was that they were, you know, picking up all these women and, and, and drinking constantly and smoking pot. So I actually cited that story to people about, about the Republicans for like a year or a year and a half until class was discredited. And then when I went back and read the story in 1990, like late 1998 or 99, whenever he got uh, exposed, <laughs> like, how could I believe this? Now that I know it's false, yeah, clearly it's false. You know, he, he's, like cre- he's like a fiction writer that was selling fiction. Uh, a place like the New Republic, with their supposed high standard of journalism, um, uh, bought every lie after every lie. Um, so this is the thing about the New York Times. The New York Times better be really careful because I think um, what they are doing to Ronan Farrell is they're trying to impugn his um, his credibility in order to muddy the waters without themselves offering any kind of definitive uh, um, proof or definitive uh, uh, evidence debunking any of his conclusions. There, there's none of that in the, in the Ben Smith piece. And again, I, I like Ben Smith. Um, I don't, I, what I meant to say earlier about BuzzFeed was I don't, I, I, I think that this is something he would not have written there. I think there was probably some internal pressure in the building uh, to, to have written this. And I, and, I, and I saw this morning on Reliable Sources a guy that was pretty reluctant and was trying to kind of like say, hey, I'm not taking a shot at him. And, oh, yeah, and he was kind of in different places. Now, the other thing was that Dan Abrams was off this morning. Um, and Dan Abrams had allowed, and I, I read media, uh, media every day. I have for 
since he, since he started it, since Abrams started it. And um, which I think he started right when he left MSNBC, um, I think, uh, 2007, 2008, that time period. Um, so obviously he has a relationship with Matt Lauer. Mm-hmm. But he allowed Matt Lauer to write this, you know, op-ed without any sort of um, uh, rebuttal, without any sort of qualifiers in it. Yes, what Abrams would claim is if, if Ronan Farrow wants to write a rebuttal, he's welcome to, but why would he? Right? Um, but that Matt Lauer was given the, the, the uh, platform to write uh, this, this soliloquy defending himself and essentially saying that uh, all of these people that, that uh, Farrow uh, had uh, – had, had, uh, had supposedly spoken to the habit. Now, this is another mm-hmm. this is part of the thing about journalism. Okay? So, are, are they trying to claim now? Because they use anonymous sources all the time. Or they use sources that, that they know their sources, uh, these people who are writing, uh, Ben Smith, others at the New York Times, the editors there, Dan Abrams, Matt Lauer. Well, Matt Lauer was a television journalist, so I don't know how much he knows about it written journalism, but um, they do understand that so people who are sources, who have already been, uh, there's a culture of intimidation and fear, and of sexual harassment, and of yep. um, this sort of intimidation in the workplace at NBC, and Harvey Weinstein, and Matt Lauer, and all these things, that they are going to turn around and say to uh, NBC or to Matt Lauer or to whoever, oh, yeah, I'm the one, I talked to Ronan Farrow. So the, 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 they're going to come out. You know how things are when, when something gets published. People come out and deny it and claim that mm-hmm. the writer made things up. So now Matt Lauer takes that to another level and puts it in print. Dan Abrams lets him put it in print. I, 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 I think they're not going to let go of this until they completely discredit Ronan Farrow, but they're only discrediting them in his, in their world, right? This, this, uh, upper East side, um, media elite, uh, world that they're in. I think for the well, public as a whole, they're uninterested in Matt Lauer's, um, uh, uh, reputation. See, they're, they're, oh, they're yeah, not nobody... Nobody received that that um, Matt Lauer piece with with anything else, but unless you were inside that bubble of of of, uh, you know New York City city writers, everyone else received that as oh look who's talking about the the Ronan Farrow you know responding at the same time as the Ronan Farrow piece. It all underscores one of the main. Uh, theses of of Glenn Greenwald's piece, which is um, that uh, journalists are being encouraged and incentivized to say or publish anything they want, no matter how reckless or fact-free, provided their target is someone sufficiently disliked by mainstream or, let's say, liberal uh, New York City, uh, Manhattan elite media um, yeah. and, and venues and, and social media. And so what Matt Lauer is trying to do is to get on the other side of that. You know, he's 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 one of the people who are on the outside looking in. He wants to get back on the inside looking out. Uh, and, and I think that's what his ridiculous piece in, in Mediate does 
It's 21 pages, and he goes page by page through Ronan Farrow's book, and he names names, and I and I. It, it looks to me like if any of the women in there wanted to be litigious, they could go after him. It is it is a sloppy, messy thing, and it's gross. It, it shouldn't have it shouldn't have been allowed. Yeah. So the concern is, why would Dan Abrams, again, who worked at NBC, who worked at MSNBC, um, who I actually like, who I've liked as a legal correspondent when he's been on ABC, Mike put me on ABC. Uh, why would he allow – obviously, he has a relationship with Matt Lauer. And, and by the time – it should be noted by the time Ronan Farrow had a show on it, uh, MSNBC, Dan Abrams was gone. So they probably don't know each other. Um, I may, though. Um, but the, 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 the point being, why would he allow Matt Lauer this stage? Why would he allow something that would uh, potentially – just muddy the waters further. Now, I have to say, Mediaite does a lot of really good stuff. So um, I don't want to be too hard on, on, on that publication. Whereas I think the New York Times, a lot of their media, New York Times media criti- critiques now have gotten uh, into this sort of territory Glenn Greenwald was talking about, where if someone is not liked by the Manhattan elite media, and it's usually conservatives, but, but oftentimes it, 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 it is people like Ronan Farrow or or uh, 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 Matt Taibbi and, and people like that uh, on the mm-hmm. left, um, they, they take their slingshot and they go after them. And so I, I actually think the New York Times is putting themselves in a very, very dangerous position. Do they want to be seen as the protector? Of, and this is the problem with resistance. It's funny because there's some projection going on. I'm calling it resistance journalism because they are kind of the hub of resistance, them and MSNBC, um, who – are two big cogs of this story. They are in this position where they, I think, want to be the protector of everything in kind of the elite media in Manhattan. Uh, there was some sloppiness even on their cover today, I have to point out. There, was, uh, there were apparently some people on their uh, list of 100,000 names or whatever that uh, had died from new causes. Um, but uh, those sorts well, of things. Well, and I problems. think they did this. I think that they think that they're untouchable. Yeah, they, right. they, so they're going to get scrutinized more from the like that. Right. Right. Well, listen, yeah, Kirk, we need to. We need to. I'm sorry, we had to cut it a little bit short for tonight because I got another. And my recorded interview is a little bit more than 30 minutes. Um, but but I wanted to leave it on, on on like that note. I think that you're making a very good point that uh, that all of this now opens up a new can of worms. It's been a long time since we've had a, 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 a big blow up with, uh, w- with writers and especially elite writers at the yeah. New York Times. So we're about due for one. Yeah, and I think unfortunately for them, they better be uh, super careful about their reporting from here on out. There's been some sloppiness in even how they cover the Trump administration because they've been anxious to take down Trump, Trump mm-hmm. as have many in the elite media. But the New York Times being the leader of that, I tend to I – mean, I'm a New York Times subscriber. I tend to love their, a lot of their analysis of the Trump administration. But then I've seen you know, some things from Maggie Haberman, who is the, kind of the lead, um, lead DC-oriented writer or political writer, uh, that – I think that's actually not true. And I think there was a tweet she, she put out there a couple of weeks ago that I 
I co-tweeted and, and had to correct. So they better be really careful because the, the sort of sloppy mistakes that just generally happen. You can't be right all the time. And sometimes journalists right. have to follow their intuition and make assumptions, and that's perfectly okay. And Ben Smith admitted today that's perfectly okay after saying a couple of minutes earlier, no, it's not okay that Ronan Farrow did that. But in his article, he basically says, no, it's not okay Ronan Farrow did that. So now the New York Times, everybody from Maggie Haberman on down better cross their teeth, dot their eyes, and not make assumptions because they have gone on record, and they, they are the paper of record in this country. They have now gone on record saying a reporter uh, cannot do that, essentially. That's where I'll leave. I, I can't wait to see how this plays out. Cardick, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody check out Cardick on uh, Twitter. What is your handle on Twitter? KKFLA737. All right, y'all. Uh, follow Cardick. He, he's a really good follow. We will talk to you again real soon. Cardick, thank you so much for bringing this uh, to our attention tonight. All right, you guys, we are going to have part two of a uh, former professor at FIU, uh, Jerry Brown, on the psychedelic renaissance. That's coming up in just a second. Screaming, dripping so hard, running naked through your yard, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We will continue our discussion with Professor Jerry Brown, uh, a researcher into the fields of not only anthropology, but of the psychedelic experience and its many therapeutic and uh, human uses. Professor Brown. Yes, well, it's good to be back. Um, it's a very interesting example, Rick, that you gave there with the um, peyote. Uh, peyote has been used for millennia by the Huichol Indians of Mexico. And with the coming of the Spaniard and the seeing of all of these uh, mushrooms and, and um, morning glory vines and peyote, they saw this as the devil's weed, this sort of went underground. And while they ostensibly for 300 years worshiped Christianity, and integrated and syncretized uh, symbols of Christianity into their, their religion, they never let go of the peyote cult, the way of the peyote. It was in the 1880s, after the devastation of Wounded Knee Two, Wounded Knee, and the final defeat of the Sioux Indians, that peyote, which was an interdirected religion, spread like wildfire up like Mexico, up from Mexico, uh, through the Central Plains and out to many of the uh, Native American peoples. Um, because there is a demonstrated historical religious use of peyote in, uh, in the Native American church, the Supreme Court allowed the exception of peyote, which is an illegal substance under the Controlled Substances Act, to be used in the Native American church. There are about uh, 300,000 Native Americans who use peyote 
in the religious rituals. Um, later on in the 1990s, there was something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it also allows, it, it is through that act, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act 1993, that allows ayahuasca to be used in the two branches of the Brazilian churches that utilize ayahuasca, Santo Deme, Santo Deme, and the Unión de Vegetal, the UDV. So what we have now is the federal approval of two groups of people using psychedelics. The interesting thing here is that there was a way to both integrate Christian religion and symbolism into indigenous practices. For example, Maria Sabina, who is probably the world's most famous shamanic healer, a Mazatec native in the state of Oaxaca in Mexico, whose life was documented by Gordon Wasson, a, uh, a, a mushroom seeker, and he became the first quote-unquote white outsider to experience the mushroom velada. Uh, in her ceremonies, she says, uh, and, and I quote from her chants, our shooting star woman, our shooting star woman, our whirling woman of the colors, our woman of the field, ah, our Jesus Christ, our woman santo, our woman santo, ah, our Jesus Christ, our spirit woman. So we see that a syncretic process has taken place here. And basically, in our own research, uh, which I'd be happy to get into, which documented through photographs of psychoactive mushrooms, Amanita muscaria and psilocybin, in early Christian and medieval Christian art, um, that Christianity itself that's a psychedelic history. And we do not, did not undertake this research, do, nor do we educate it to undermine anyone's faith in Christianity or in any religious belief, but hopefully to reintroduce them to a religious phenomena that's been there through hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, uh, we quote in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. Brother David Stendhal Rost, who is of the Order of St. Benedict, and he says the following, um, I contemplate the possibility of encountering God through all available sacraments. Faith simply accepted with gratefulness that God works through all created things, all question mark. If we can encounter God through a sunrise seen from a mountaintop, why not through a mushroom prayerfully ingested? So what I want to suggest here and, uh, is that these substances are fundamentally uh, not anathema, to religion, although they were banned by Christianity with the coming of the Inquisition, which demonized the wise women of medieval Europe who maintained 
these sacred plant traditions and turn them into the satanic witches. And this was a direct reaction. We talk about a plague today uh, to the Black Plague, the bubonic plague that swept through Europe in about uh, 1348 to 1352, killing off one third to, in some people's estimations, up to 60% of the population of Europe, including the clergy. And the church, which had the hotline to God, could not protect people from this. So the church looked to scapegoats. And this eventually gave rise to the condemnation of witchcraft as a heresy and to the persecution and burning at the stake of many uh, hundreds of thousands of witches, mainly women witches. So what we have today with the legalization of peyote and of um, ayahuasca, and ayahuasca, the use of ayahuasca in Santo Deme and in the UDV in Brazil is approved by the Brazilian Council of Bishops. So these two traditions of a major world religion and psychedelics can exist and if they give people a deeper sense of spirituality, of ritual and connection with God, then there's a value. Will we one day see that integrated into a major Judaism, Christianity? I don't know how long that might take. I hope it happens faster than it took the Catholic Church to pardon and forgive Galileo 300 years uh, after it persecuted him uh, during the, the Inquisition. But I think that religious leaders who are also taking part in some of this research on meditation versus prayer versus psychedelics at Johns Hopkins uh, will come to see that, look, we shouldn't leave the religious experience only to the white-coated uh, therapists and researchers. So I think as the research moves forward, that we will eventually be able to reintegrate these substances uh, into our society. Um, we have to get past um, you know, the ghost of Timothy Leary and uh, trying to exercise what happened in the 1960s. A lot of what happened in the 1960s was very positive, certainly in my own life and the life of many others. And we would not have a psychedelic renaissance today if we had not gone through um, the psychedelic uh, movement of the 1960s. Some people say it put back the research. Absolutely it did, without a doubt. But it also uh, embedded psychedelics into popular culture, which are now being legitimized. Because as we see with cannabis, legalization follows medicalization. And with the medical successes of psychedelics, we're taking substances that were used from time immemorial among the reindeer herders of Siberia, among the Mazatec of Mexico, among the peyote-taking Cora and Huichol Indians of um, central Mexico, among the um, central African people who use uh, evil game in their religious experiences. Um, and in the very basis of the Hindu Rig Veda, embedded is a psychoactive mushroom embedded in the Rig Veda, the oldest of the Hindu scriptures. Uh, we're going to see that uh, there is a new opening 
for psychedelics in the modern world? You know, one of the things that uh, uh, kind of strikes me about uh, your work, uh, and I'm looking at the I'm looking at the psychedelic gospels right now, and uh, you, you have this map in the introduction of the sacred sites and churches, and there's some there's some real interesting names on here. So you know you've got Roslyn Chapel in Scotland, and then you've got um, Rennes Chateau in France. And and there's been such with those two chapels. There's there's been this other kind of uh, uh, lore that got pulled into the um, uh, Dan Brown books. But it seems yeah. to me that that these and there was no treatment of of this kind of iconography and this kind of lore. And I and I'm starting to wonder, hey, maybe that that damn brown lore, uh, maybe it missed something very significant by not taking this kind of iconography and this kind of lore into account. Um. Absolutely. And, and here's, let's, let's start off with Roslyn Chapel. And in fact, Julie and I, on our 20th anniversary, uh, visited Roslyn Chapel, which is located about seven kilometers, uh, a few miles south of Edinburgh in Scotland. We had read the Dan Brown books. Uh, we had read the Da Vinci Code in which Roslyn Chapel was described as a possible resting place of the Holy Grail, the, the uh, remains of the Virgin Mary. And we went to Roslyn Chapel, and Roslyn Chapel is a magnificent small chapel created uh, by Sir William Sinclair. Uh, he started construction in um, 1440s, and it ended in 1480 at the time, in the 1480s at the time of his death. And Roslyn Chapel, which is an official Catholic church for services and for the mass, is unique in Christendom in that it is a blending of both pagan, Old Testament, and New Testament symbolism. And there are, for example, uh, heads, faces of green men, which are pagan fertility symbols sculpted throughout Roslyn Chapel. And many of them, over a hundred of them, are united by a sinuous vine that is sculpted into the wall around Roslyn Chapel. I was fascinated by um, the face of one of the most prominent green men of Roslyn Chapel, which um, stares down. It's over the sacred altars where prayer is conducted at the front of the chapel. If you'll turn to page 13, Brooke, of the Psychedelic Gospels. Mm -hmm. And looking up, this statue comes down from a stone vault that is suspended from the ceiling about 15 feet above, and is about 8 or 10 feet above our head. And I was fascinated by this enigmatic face, and you can see the leaves and the vines coming out of its mouth. And the, and the leaves around its forehead. I bought a plaster replica of this Roslyn Greenman at the gift store of Roslyn Chapel. And two weeks later, Julie and I were sitting 
in an Italian restaurant in St. Andrews. And I turned the plaster replica of this green man head around on the table. And I was staring at a full-blown Amanita muscaria mushroom sculpted upside down into the forehead of the green man. Now, why has Dan Brown, who is an expert on symbolism, why have art historians, church historians, theologians, tour guides who have visited and marveled at Roslyn Chapel for over 500 years never seen this before? The reason is that they're not tra trained in mycology what, or in psychoactive mycology. What are psychoactive mushrooms? What do they look like? What are their uh, botanical characteristics? And they're not trained in ethnomycology, how different cultures use these. So, for example, this um, great Canterbury Psalter, which I mentioned earlier on when I talked about Jesus healing the leper, I showed the, green, the, the psychoactive drawings to a prominent art historian at Cambridge University in England who had written a commentary on the Great Canterbury Psalter. And he looked at that and he said, Jerry, I'm sorry, I wouldn't know a mushroom if I saw one. So this is part of the problem. Uh, an anthropologist works in an interdisciplinary framework. So in preparing and teaching this course, course psychedelics and culture at Florida International University. I had to learn botany, ethnobotany, ethnomycology, religion, um, different shamanic practices. And so I was able to recognize them. Fortunately, while Judy and Julie and I were writing the book, we had the good fortune to meet with Paul Stamets, who is one of the world's foremost mycologists. And he has a book called a mycelium running, how mushrooms can help save the world. He has an incredible website called Fungi Perfecti, Fungi Perfecti. And I showed Paul this picture and I said, Paul, this is the life stages of an Amanita muscaria from the round bulb at the base to the little veil around the stem to the dots on the mushroom, of course, sculpted in. And he said, Jerry, this is a taxonomically correct Amanita muscaria mushroom. And this was a great confirmation from a famous mycologist of our finding. So now, and Julie, who's an incredible researcher, found a reference to a passage in, inscribed in Roslyn Chapel that led us into two Ezra and the Apocrypha, the books that did not get into the Bible, that were an obvious ingestion by a prophet of a psychedelic substance. And now our minds started spinning out. Oh, I have to tell you another synchronicity. Uh, after making that discovery, I took a nap. I told you I was a great napper. And Julie, at our inn in, in Roslyn, in, in, uh, in Edinburgh, in St. Andrews, I'm sorry, after we discovered this in St. Andrews, and Julie taps me on the shoulder and she says, you're never going to believe what's playing at the movie theater. I said, what? She said, the Da Vinci Code. So we went and we saw the Da Vinci Code uh, again. And of course, as we learned in, uh, in, uh, at uh, Grenada Chateau and other research, 
there's no definitive proof for the theories of Dan Brown, but it makes great reading. Uh, we, as with others, believe that psychoactive mushrooms were um, the original Eucharist. And that's a dramatic statement. And, and I want to back that up a little bit, uh, actually a lot, because um, before the year 200 AD, there is no Christian art for a lot of reasons. Persecution, uh, lack of churches, structures on poverty, lack of structures in which to create the art. So we had to also, in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, go back into the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Gnostic Gospels, which were early Christian Gospels that were buried in the sands of Egypt and rediscovered and translated starting in 1954. And let me just give you one example from a passage from the Gnostic Gospels called the Gospel of Thomas. I quote, Jesus said to his disciples, compare me to someone and tell me whom I am like. Thomas said to him, Master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like. Jesus said, I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I shall become like he, and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. This and other passages we discovered are remarkable. Jesus is talking about an intoxication through a drink. This is obviously not wine. It is a drink that he is measuring out. In other words, he's talking about, I, I gave you a dose. I measured the dose. And here we have described, I shall become like he, and things that are hidden will be revealed. Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven is within. And these substances generate the divine within. So we believe that part of Jesus' experience and those of the disciples and those of the followers of early Christianity, of immortality, of the, of the divine, were inspired by psychoactive mushrooms. We then set out in our, and, and this is also, you can look at other passages. What is Jesus saying when he says, you know, drink of, drink of my blood, eat of my flesh? He's certainly not asking people to become cannibals. That would have been anathema, repugnant to both Jews and Romans alike. We think it involves the um, reference, the poetic reference to the early Eucharist. Now, when we made this discovery at Roslyn in 2006, Julie and I got very excited, and you can imagine the excitement of that once-in-a-lifetime aha movement. I mean, archaeologists and paleontologists can go through their entire lives and never make a major discovery. And we thought, this is a significant discovery. Are there examples of psychedelics in Christian art in other churches? How far does this go? Does this go back to the time of early Christianity? And our minds started racing. 
And before we got carried away, we thought about two things. One, the words of Carl Sagan, the famous astrophysicist who said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. In other words, if you're gonna make an extraordinary claim that, that Christianity has a psychedelic history, you better have some pretty darn compelling evidence. And then I remember the words of my esteemed professor of symbolic anthropology at Cornell University, Victor Turner, who said, good theory comes from good research. Go out and do the field work. So it took us until about 2012 till we were able to undertake a six month sabbatical and research journey through Europe and the Middle East, uh, visiting places that you see uh, on the map in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, traveling to England, to France, to Germany, to Italy, including to the museums of the Vatican, to Greece, the site of the Eleusinian Mysteries, to the cave churches of Turkey, and wherever we went, we found and photographed with my wife and co-author Julie taking all of the photographs, images of psychedelic mushrooms, the red and white Amanita muscaria mushroom and the psilocybin mushroom in Christian art. What do we mean by Christian art? We mean in mosaics on floors and walls. We mean frescoes, wall paintings from medieval times sculpture, as we saw in Roslyn Chapel, illuminated Bibles and prayer books, and, these, this, and, and stained glass windows at the famous Shark Cathedral, where we found psychedelic mushroom images in seven of the 176, and we counted every one of them, uh, stained glass windows in Shark uh, Cathedral. We found this in very small chapels and abbeys where monks lived and worked. We found this in churches and we found this in major cathedrals, such as Canterbury Cathedral, such as Shark Cathedral, such as the famous St. Michael's Church in Hildesheim, Germany. In many cases, we don't know who actually created the art. Was it the artist himself? Was it the church fathers? who commissioned the art? Was it the patrons of the church who funded the art? Was it all three of them working together, wanting to convey a message? But in the case of Hildesheim, we know precisely who created it. It was Bishop Bernward, who was later sainted by the Catholic Church 200 years after his death, who was a major figure to the extent that he was the tutor to Otto III, who became the Holy Roman Emperor. And he gave us an incredible legacy of psychedelics embedded in bronze doors that he cast, and also his descendants, monastic descendants, created the, a, a ceiling painting, a 90-foot-long ceiling painting of the Jesse tree that starts out in the Garden of Eden with a powerful Amanita muscaria psychedelic uh, image. Uh, I can walk you th specifically through a few of these key discoveries, uh, but I don't know if you have some additional questions at this point. Um, well, yeah, I think that that would be really cool because it, it feels to me, I have, I have a lot of interest in, in Gnosticism and 
specifically how Gnosticism and the idea of Gnosis is reemerging in in pop culture. Like uh, it just it, it's wonderful and it's also odd. And I think that that one of the reasons why uh, why we see it more is I think there's seeing another wave of, of, of interest in, in the psychedelic experience and the idea of gnosis kind of fits together with that. It kind of helps people make sense of what they're experiencing and how that has a historical framework, you know, that, that we're not just out here on our, on our own. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, Elaine Pagels of Princeton University uh, Theology has written a book uh, called Agnostic Gospels, and she makes a very clear threefold distinction between Orthodox Christianity, which by 200 eventually came to dominate and to suppress many of the other Christian uh, belief systems and traditions that were going on, including the very powerful Gnostic uh, movement. Uh, she said, look, first, Orthodox Christians believe that God is wholly other, wholly separated from humanity. While the Gnostics contradict this and have the belief that self-knowledge is knowledge of God. In other words, the self and the divine are identical. We are, in essence, divine beings. Secondly, the Orthodox Christians contend that Jesus did not come to save humanity from sin. In other words, unlike Orthodox Christians, the Gnostics believe that Jesus did not come to save humanity from sin. He came to serve as a guide to show the way to spiritual enlightenment. And therefore, uh, this, is, this is fundamental to the way that we saw in the Gospel of Thomas that God and, and humanity are one. So it was a very different tradition. Now let's fast forward to modern times because we're finding in, in resurgence of Wicca and resurgence of spirituality, the New Age movement, the Gnostic movement, and many of these, um, what were earlier marginal movements growing into prominence as mainstream religious attendance and participation declines. And this is documented by the Pew Research Center for Religious Studies which found that 20% of Americans say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And when you go to the youth, it's 33%. In other words, I'm spiritual. I believe that the world is sacred. I believe there is a divine presence in the world, uh, but I don't do it through a traditional religious framework. And all of these different avenues, whether it be Wicca, whether it be paganism, whether it be New Age, whether it be, you know, Deepak Chopra's uh, God is Revelation uh, works. I see these all as spokes on the same wheel that lead as meditation can lead, as service can lead to the fundamental truth that there is a spiritual dimension to humanity and to our lives. And what psychedelics do in creating the altered state of consciousness is allow us to access it 
in ways that when we're dealing with everyday things, change the oil in the car, pay, pay the bills, make sure you put your mask on today, that we can't possibly uh, contemplate. Stanislav Grof is the founder of LSD psychotherapy. Uh, when he was a Freudian psychotherapist back in the 1950s in Prague, he received from Sandoz Laboratories and Dr. Albert Hoffman uh, LSD. And they wanted therapists, psychiatrists, to try it out on patients because they felt it mimicked psychosis and it could helpfully, possibly be helpful in curing it. Stanislav Grof developed LSD psychotherapy and he has guided over 3,000 LSD trips, more than any human being. His collected works are in a two-volume series of books called The Way of the Psychonaut, Groff, G-R-O-F, The Way of the Psychonaut, that I recommend to anyone interested in learning about the foundations and applications of psychedelics. Uh, when these became illegal, he developed holotropic breath work to try to re, uh, recapitulate, to, to create similar experiences, altered states of consciousness. And he came to this phenomenal conclusion out of all of his work that leads to a paradigm shift. I quote, I see consciousness and the human psyche as expressions and reflections of a cosmic intelligence that permeates the entire universe and all of existence. We are not just highly evolved animals with biological computers inside our skulls. We are also fields of consciousness without limits transcending time, space, matter, and linear causality, end quote. Stanislav Grof, the holotropic mind. And that is where the mystical experience lives in those expanded fields of consciousness that is so fundamental to all religious traditions. And we're also singing to uh, psychotherapeutic healing. Professor, before we uh, sign off, I know we're about to lose you. Uh, why don't you give the uh, the name of your book again? And uh, I imagine you have a website or a Facebook site as well, so that people who are further who want to get uh, more information from you uh, might be able to get in touch with you and read more about your work. Yes, uh, with pleasure. Our book is called The Psychedelic Gospels: The Secret History of Hallucinogens and Christianity, and it is a documentation and analysis of the multiple case studies we discovered throughout Europe and the Middle East of psychedelic images in Christian art. It's available on Amazon and many other bookseller platforms. Our website is www.psychedeliggospelsoneword.com, psychedeliggospels.com. And we also have a Facebook page called Psychedelic Gospels, two words, Facebook Psychedelic Gospels, where we post our recent findings, our blogs, and other discoveries being made by organizations like uh, MAPS.org, which are at the forefront of psychedelic medical research. And one last question, if I may, sir. Uh, if, uh, if you were to advise someone, I, I realize this is kind of thin ice and dangerous territory, but if you were to advise someone who was interested in learning more about these on a personal basis, where would you direct them for the guidance that we all know, the beginning uh, 
psychonaut needs to, to make sure that their trip is uh, a positive and constructive one. Okay, yeah, for people interested in the trend of microdosing, that is taking sub-hallucinogenic small doses of LSD or psilocybin, I recommend two websites. One is Third Wave, which has very excellent information on microdosing, and the other is a site called microdosingpsychedelics.com, microdosingpsychedelics.com. Uh, secondly, for anyone interested in learning about psychedelics, learning the safety issues, the when, you know, who should not take psychedelics, uh, learning how to identify and work with guides, because there are hundreds and hundreds of guides around the country. And you know, all I can say is seek and you shall find. Uh, I, there's one book above all that I recommend. It's Jim Fadiman, F-A-D-I-M-A-N, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. It is a comprehensive guidebook to anything you would want to know for the first time explorer of the psychedelic experience, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Professor. This has been very much an enlightening experience. Brooke, any final words, my friend? I, no, I just want to thank you so much. This was a fabulous uh, discussion. And I took a lot of notes. I feel like I was in like the best class ever. <laughs> thank you. I, 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 hope to, I hope to put my course up on the web since everything's going on the web someday. So uh, maybe you will be able to do that, Brooke. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. I very much, Julie and I, very much appreciate the invitation to share our work on the psychedelic gospels. And our, our best regards to your wife as well. Thank you. Have a good day, sir. Bye-bye. And that was Rick Spizak with the second part, the last part of the Jerry Brown interview on uh, the Psychedelic Gospels. I will throw up some more links in the show notes. But right now we have uh, Janine Maloff with the Justice Report. I look forward to this every week. Hey, how are you doing, Janine? I'm fine, Brooke. I'm just going to get right into it. This is part of our Not Dying for Wall Street series. This one's about the protests and the purges, and I'm going to be speaking about the protests. The protests, the anti-lockdown protests, are actually spreading disease. For several weeks, any person with a conscience and some common sense has watched in horror as throngs of far-right and even alt-right thugs have descended like wild jackals on the state capitals demanding their dubious liberties, among which is apparently the right to spread or to potentially spread COVID-19 as an asymptomatic carrier. These people have formed an armed insurrection against any lockdowns, especially in Michigan, any social distancing, much less any quarantines. Like arrogant, irrational adolescents on a hormone-driven rant, these armed crowds are brandishing deadly weapons such as guns and even an occasional bazooka in addition to the weaponizing of this virus. They refuse to comply with lockdowns, wear masks, or socially distance, and many come from outside the state they are visiting, contrary to popular opinion. So how are these people affording the road trip? Better yet, who or what is funding this rebellion of misfits and what I'll say morons? This report will speak to those questions in an attempt to identify what groups or individuals are inciting this dangerous and irrational revolt. 
This report also demonstrates that Trump and his extremist supporters are not an anomaly, but are the mainstream GOP. Many of these leaders and funders of these dangerous insurrections are retreads from both the Reagan and George W. Bush administration. So first, where are these protesters coming from? Common Dreams published this, and uh, the writer is Jake Johnson, uh, and basically what they did, neither ironic or funny, cell data reveals that the right-wing lockdown protesters may be spreading COVID. And one of the things that Jake Johnson quoted was a Dr. Rob Davidson, who's a an emergency care physician and executive director of the Committee to Protect Medicare. And Dr. Davidson said, quote, the behavior we're seeing at protests carries a high risk of infection. Now, the accusation that these people are coming from all over, not necessarily the locales where they're protesting, has been provided by The Guardian where they took uh, cell phone data and they um, and basically the cell phone data that was provided to The Guardian by an advocacy group called the Committee to Protect Medicare. And that cell phone data demonstrated that these right-wing anti-lockdown protests, which yes, have been encouraged by Trump, um, may have not only resulted in spreading coronavirus, but it's the cell phone data showing that these people are coming from far and wide. And these, uh, the Guardian reported, this was back on the 18th, not too long ago, that the data shows that the demonstrators, some of them are heavily armed, they're traveling hundreds of miles to events, um, and basically they're protesting stay-at-home orders, uh, which are intended to basically flatten the curve of COVID, which has, you know, infected over a million people in the U.S. and killed practically 100,000 now. And many of the demonstrators are at events we know in Michigan, Wisconsin, and other states. They Many of them don't wear masks or uh, adhere to any CDC uh, guidelines. And Dr. Davidson also said, quote, we can see protesters are going from a highly concentrated event and then dispersing wildly. Scott Smith, who is a founder of a research firm called Changes, tweeted that the new data, quote, may also indicate the extent to which these were organized astroturf protests based on the distance people are traveling and common appearances at different events, end quote. And also, according to The Guardian on May 18th, the anonymized dat location data was also collected and captured from opt-in cell phone apps. And data scientists at a firm called VoteMap took that data and they used that to determine how these devices were moving at protests, you know, in late April and early May. And they concentrate on five states. Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Colorado, and Florida. And then they took that data and VoteMap created visualizations tracking the movements of these devices. And of course, devices don't travel by themselves, so the people that are carrying the devices. Um, the data scientist, uh, data scientist named Jeremy Fair, who is the executive vice president at VoteMap, said that um, many of the devices that were in within certain state borders are seen to continue across those state borders in the underlying raw data. Now, in Michigan, as we know, the armed protest was against the governor, um, and you know, once again, the police stood down. But what we have here is the public health experts are warning that these demonstrations, uh, the Seattle Times did a, a, a piece on demonstrators in Olympia, Washington, and that they could really spark a second or a third wave of COVID infections and deaths 
nationwide. And um, Maureen Casey, who's a registered nurse at Hershey Medical Center in Pennsylvania, said, quote, you may be willing to risk your lives and say, I think I'm a tough person. I can take it. Um, but it's not about you. It's about who you would expose for you to go to work. These people think it's a hoax it's a, or it's fake or it's all made up. It's not. And, you know, this is so we're seeing people coming from all over the United States. And, again, where are they getting the money? It's not cheap to you know, travel like that. The billionaire money behind the protests and the violent hate groups. So Center for Media and Democracy um, did an analysis, and uh, Alex Koch is the writer here, and he found that the secretive right-wing nonprofit um, called CNP is a big, plays a big role in the COVID-19 organizing. And the CNP is the Council for National Policy Action. The founders include multiple members of the John Birch Society. Also, the founders also include Paul Weyrich, who's also the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation and Alec. So when people think that these protesters are so this new group, no, they're not. They're being funded by old, guard, mainstream GOP. Make no mistake about it. And a lot of the people that are in charge of these groups, and Alec is involved also, um, the Council for National Policy Action has been basically having conference calls, and then they publish these action memos about reopening states. And this CNP is a coalition of far-right political advocacy and think tank individuals. They've worked behind the scenes since 1981, actually. Um, Trump allies, including Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon, were CNP members as of 2014. So was Vice, Vice President Mike Pence and one of Trump's lawyers, Jay Sekulow, have also been members. And that was according to a published book um, called The Shadow Network by Ann Nelson. Now, CNP hosts these weekly conference calls, and they are trying to coordinate COVID-19 response tactics. And the first call was uh, featured by this man, I think Moore, who founded the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. But there were other people involved, such as the Heritage Foundation's Ed Meese. Ed Meese is also a retread from the Reagan administration. And then you've got Al Regnery, who is the chairman of CNP's Conservative Action Project, and he's a cousin of white nationalist William Regnery. So these bigots have attempted to co-opt true heroes, such as Rosa Parks. They claim that, they are, that these lockdown protesters are, quote, the modern-day Rosa Parks for, quote, protesting against injustice and a loss of liberties. Liberties, and that's according to um, a piece by the New York Mag Intelligencer. Uh, the, basically, the email, the second call featured Alec CEO Lisa Nelson. Alec is the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is basically a corporate bill mill. And the State Policy Network CEO Tracy Sharp was involved also, which is also another affiliate. Um, members from the, the Eagle Forum were also involved. And when you look at this, this is not new people, all right? And so they come up with the Save Our Country Task Force. And these are another group that's basically tied to these protests to reopen the country. And Save Our Country Task Force has close ties to Alex, all right? Uh, it's chaired by Trump economic advisor Art Laffer and also includes Mr. Moore, CNC's President Bill Walton, is also involved. He's also a trustee of the Heritage Foundation. Again, this is old school GOP. 
Art Laffer is also a Reagan administration retread, like Ed Meese. And that's just more evidence that Trump, in all his hatred, is mainstream GOP, no matter what, no matter what some of these Republicans say. Um, so in last year, Trump gave Laffer um, basically a presidential medal of freedom. So once again, you've also got Robert Alt, who is involved. He's part of the Charles Koch-funded Buckeye Institute. And so, again, all these people have been helping to coordinate these on-the-ground lockdown protests that are very dangerous. Now, you go a little further, and then you find that there's more involved. So, for instance, you have a Project Convention of States Action. You've got people like Mercedes and Matt Schlapp that are involved also. Mercedes Schlapp is uh, basically a lobbyist and senior advisor to Donald Trump's campaign. Her husband, Matt Schlapp, was the ringleader of the infamous Brooks Brothers thug protest in 2000 to stop the recount. Uh, These young men that were all dressed in Brooks Brothers suits that were literally banging the door down to stop a recount. These are all retreads from George W. Bush. So in that ridiculous claim of so-called compassionate conservatism. So, you know, once again, these people are involved. And there was one exchange where Walton um, had a conversation interview with the Schlapps. And um, they, they tried to downplay the danger of the virus. So Mercedes Schlapp was quoted saying, quote, I think the reality is that when they look at the modeling, it depends what assumptions you put into the modeling you see. And so I think the thing is, let's go from millions of deaths to having more like, if you can get it down to not millions of deaths, deaths we're in a better position. And her husband, Matt, said, quote, even if you're in some of these really, really serious demographic categories, the survival rate is so high, so you should, we should feel optimistic about instead of pessimistic. These people know damn well that this is a very dangerous virus and they don't care. Now, there's more extremists at the Center for National Policy. The Southern Poverty Law Center published a leaked roster of CNP from 2014. They identified 413 members. And it wasn't just the, the conservatives, the extremists. The extremists uh, were all, they were on the executive committee, the board of directors, the board of governors, and a number of extremists from multiple hate groups, such as the Anti-LGBTQ Family Research Council, Liberty Council, the Neo-Confederate League of the South, and the Anti-Muslim Center for Security Policy. The Board of Governors had Michael Perutka on there, and he's on the board of League of the South, and he's appeared on a white nationalist radio show. And, you know, it goes on, all right? So we've got all these groups coming together that are inciting these very dangerous protests. Even if the protesters weren't carrying weapons, they already have a weapon, namely if they're asymptomatic COVID carriers. So even one or two will do it. So who's paying for these protests? Well, it comes back to billionaire funding. So you've got um, basically CNP is a larger operation than when it first started. One of the funders is the DeVos family. Richard DeVos, who's the father-in-law of Betsy DeVos, Trump's Secretary of Education, is a former president of CNP. The DeVos Family Foundation has funded the group. Um, DeVos's parents have a family charity called the Edgar and Elsa Prince Foundation. They are regular donors. Um, Then you've got the Mercers. 
The Family Foundation of Robert Mercer gave 75000 to CNP in 2013-2014. Jeff Foster Frys, who's another right-wing political mega-donor. You've got the Tea Party's Claude R. Lamb Charitable Foundation and Tea Party organizer Tim Phillips, uh, in addition to Koch-funded American Prosperity, that are also giving money and involved. Uh, institutional donors include the Family Research Council, the Heritage Foundation, which is about as mainstream GOP as you can get, and Judicial Watch. And they also uh, get from the Donor Advice Fund that sponsors the National Christian Foundation and the National Philanthropic Trust. And Alex Koch has basically uh, brought all this information together for PR Watch. So we go down a little further, and now we've got the Center for Media and Democracy. And this is exposed. And this is a piece by David Armiak and Alex Koch again. This was from April 30th. Turns out Alex is leading the right-wing campaign to reopen the economy. And these were documents obtained by the Center for Media and Democracy. And they showed that the American Legislative Exchange Council, Alec, is playing a lead role in this right-wing AstroTurf protest. Um, Alec is basically, for people who don't know, the shadow legislation group that writes, written by, the shadow legislation uh, group, they, their attorneys write um, legislation that's voiced on the rest of us with zero accountability or transparency. It's a corporate pay-to-play. And the Alec documents, uh, among which call for action to, quote, bring the economy back to life through a free market approach that gets big government out of the way. And guess what name pops up next? It doesn't get a whole lot more uh, mainstream right-wing than Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich enters as an influencer for Alec. That was an email to legislators that was obtained by CMD, um, and they are touting this podcast with guests such as Newt Gingrich, and they're talking about 30 policy prescriptions. And they have a sign-on letter from policy leaders and elected officials to President Trump, the letter praises Trump for, quote, opening up America again, end quote. And basically what they're doing is they've got all their, their corporate legislative wish list that they are pushing behind the scenes while everybody else is trying to figure out what's going on amidst all this chaos. And, and what, they, what they do is that these are businesses that have, through Alex, that have jeopardized the health and safety of workers. Um, because they don't, without government intervention or law. Um, and we, we know now that essential businesses have repeatedly jeopardized the work to help their workers, such as Amazon and workers that work in meat packing plants and so on. Alec has been behind the scenes using the COVID-19 crisis to push secretive pro-corporate agenda. Um, Alec and the Coke Influence Network is also behind, according to them, the 2017 tax giveaway the corporations and the billionaire class and the force behind the premature opening. And that is based on emails obtained by CMD and that Alex has been working very closely with the Trump administration to push this. Alex CEO Lisa Nelson has basically had uh, uh, multiple conversations with Mike, Mike Pence. Um, now on March 30th, Alex hosted a conference call and this was documented on a cloud, um, and it was between its members and partners that featured the National Federation of Independent Businesses. And basically, they were discussing how to help, quote, businesses in their communities access capital and restart their business. 
We've also got the Save Our Country Coalition, and the Alex CEO also serves on the National Leadership Council of that coalition. And that right-wing effort that's behind these AstroTurf dangerous protesters is also chaired by Alex Economist, Art Laffer, who's part of the Trump administration. Um, and so it goes on and on and on. And then the, they Save Our Country also, they list their key principles. And their main principles, in my opinion, are to reopen a nation with no viable pandemic plan, weaken the power of government, to ch- this, is, this is my opinion, to challenge corporate power, even if such power endangers lives, push through what I call the three horsemen of the economic apocalypse, namely tax cuts for the rich, which pushes the burden on wage earners, lawsuit reform, which is corporate code for granting a get-out-of-jail-free card, for large corporate interests, even if they poison our water or damage our children, and deregulation, which directs the corporate fox to enjoy the accommodations of the hen house with zero legal repercussions. As for the remaining principles, well, the corporate idea of federalism is preferred since most states fail to have the fiscal power to challenge corporate demands in court. Given that many of these corporate entities generate more wealth for a few individuals than the gross national product of various mid-sized nations, in essence, these corporate lobbyists and attorneys want to shoot fish in a barrel. So once again, the money trail feverishly works to subvert any, any democracy. Again, Koch ties, ALEC. Um, the latest IRS filings show that Charles Koch gave ALEC uh, over $300,000 in 2018. And in it, it goes on. Ed Meese, the Heritage Foundation, again, a Reagan retread, is on the leadership council of ALEC. Bill Walton uh, the trustee of the Koch-backed American Enterprise Institute, and, and it goes on. And it's also, these people are also affiliated with the Koch-funded Mackinac Center. Now, the Mackinac Center was the force and power behind the bogus emergency manager local law that resulted in basically the bad decisions that led to the Flint water crisis. So this has been going on for a while. There's nothing new. Save Our Country Steering Committee includes Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and a close Trump ally. So it goes on and on and on. And what we have at this point, we even have Attorney General Barr has a memo calling state and local COVID-19 protections, quote, overbearing. And Barr released that memo on April 27th. And he's, again, going at it. So, uh, you know, basically we have this corporate money that is behind these AstroTurf protests. So the Save Our Country Coalition is one of the major players in this game of dangerous incitement. And here's, there's a, uh, so, so many people that are involved in this dubious coalition, people like Newt Gingrich and Ed, Ed Meese, that again are, you know, retreads from mainstream GOP. The National Leadership Council of Save Our Country Coalition in, includes individuals from the following groups, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, Freedom Works, Tea Party Pat, Patriots, ALEC, Gingrich Productions, Liberty University School of Business, the Heritage Foundation, Stanford University's Hoover Institute, National Review, Media Research Center, and the Bill Bennett Show. And Bill Bennett, if you recall, was Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Education. So we can go on and on. But the fact is that we have a situation where, again, nothing Trump does, including this, is new. Um, 
list documents that these extremists are not merely limited to Donald Trump's sphere of influence, but are part of the backbone of the traditional GOP. There is nothing new here. This is the GOP of Reagan and George W. Bush, the foe, the false compassion and conservatism unmasked in all its ugliness and hate. Bill Bennett, as I said, was Reagan's Secretary of Education. Newt Gingrich led the contract on America. Jenny Thomas, I mentioned. Matt Schlapp has been a commentator on multiple news shows, was a ringleader in the Brooks Brothers riot of 2000 that halted the Florida recount in the presidential election. Schlapp and several other young thugs literally banged the door down to illegally interfere with the recount and help propel George W. Bush to the Oval Office. In conclusion, these anti-lockdown protests have been incited and funded by big money interests and a coordinated plan to maximize profits while endangering the lives of the average workers and their families. In addition, the attorneys for Alec have systematically, systemically labored to push legislation that would further hamstring any environmental or human safety protections by claiming such deregulation is necessary to build a better business climate. It could be argued that the chaos resulting from Trump's refusal to pursue a viable pandemic plan wasn't the byproduct of seeming incompetence, but part of a program to push legislation that further destroys any corporate limitations in the middle of this chaos. One thing is for certain. The GOP of Trump is the mainstream GOP. There is no difference. Trump is not, as some argue, an anomaly. Rather, he is the logical product of a movement firmly rooted in bigotry and hate. From the cruel indifference of the Reagan administration, where ketchup was considered a vegetable in child, children's lunches, a juvenile version of Marie Antoinette's infamous Let Me Cake, to the sanctioning of truck by George W. Bush, and the open racism and neo-Nazism of the Tea Party. The GOP has openly embraced cruelty and tyranny. Trump isn't the cause. He's merely the excreted solid waste. And that's my report. Oh, wow. Janine, thank you very much. That was absolutely amazing. Uh, uh, <laughs> thank you. We've we've talked about this a little bit before. Where, if people wanted to get in touch with you, do do you have a social media presence anywhere that people can reach out? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of stupid when it comes to technology. I will be having a social media presence. I will have a website up soon. Um, I don't have one yet. Um, the easiest way is through, um, you know, Progressive News Network. Um, but next month I will have a social media presence. Awesome. I cannot wait. Well, uh, and I can't wait for your uh, report next week, and uh, we will talk again then. And uh, for for the rest of tonight, thank you for everyone for tuning in. Thank you, Kardik Krishnair, for joining us to talk about uh, the Ronan Farrow piece, and thank you everyone for uh, uh, listening to me ranting about uh, the various and sundry things that uh, came upon my radar this week. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys with uh, a little ditty about Andrew Jackson. And uh, enjoy this, and we will see you again next week. Ready, he was known both far and wide.
Most white and red man with his pistol by his side. Old Andy Jackson, old Andy Jackson. He was born in Waxhaw, South Carolina, and that's a good place to live. Thank you guys for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.